It's an 87th Precinct side pod. Settle down on your perch, sharpen your beak on that nice, fresh cuttlefish, treat yourself to a mouthful of trill, and prepare to get stuck into Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Evan Hunter joined Hitch on this project as screenwriter in September 1961, a job that entailed him moving his entire family out to LA for several months while he worked with the director on writing this adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's short story from 1952. I'll put together some show notes on the blog about this, hark87podcast.blogspot.com, but basically, they'd met after one of Evan Hunter's stories featured in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV series, and later after Hunter himself adapted a different writer's story for that same series a little later on. Joining me today to discuss the movie that looms so large in Evan Hunter's legend, The Birds, it's the host of the Trial of a Time Lord podcast, or Who Trial for short. And he, in true Ed McBain slash Kirk Cannon slash Hunt Collins style, has chosen to travel under a pseudonym, which is Herbert West. You can find his podcast through Twitter at, at Who Trial, but he'll tell you a little bit more about that himself in the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review the episode or the podcast in general. And if you feel so inclined, buy us a digital coffee at coffee.com slash podcast. And we'll plough any funds we get back into the show. We are up and running. So extra special thanks to those of you who have already bought us a digital coffee. Thank you very much. Now, plump up your feathers. Take one last look in your little mirror. Yes, you are a pretty boy, aren't you? And let's take flight with the birds. Knock, knock. Who's there? A dead seagull. <laughs> a dead seagull who? Just a dead seagull. <laughs> Some of them are very active for what are obviously dead birds, it's worth pointing yeah. out. They're very energetic. They certainly are. It, well, it's a strange thing if you want to watch this film and try and spot which are the fakes, which are real, which are stills, which is film. But we'll get into that. Mm. To introduce this, just say that one of the reasons we're doing this podcast now is that in the main episodes of Hark, we've just finished the 87th Precinct books that span 1962 and 1963. Ah. So outside of those books, The Birds is the biggest job that Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, mm. has got on. He completed a standalone novel in 1961 called Mothers and Daughters, which I haven't read. It was a bestseller. But the main thing he's been doing outside of the 87th Precinct is working with Hitchcock mm. to make this film. So that's why we're here. And of course, well, 1963 is an important year for the, the likes of me and you as well, because mm -hmm. it's the year that Doctor Who starts. Oh, yes. The blessed Who. This is your little opportunity, I think, to tell the listening, uh, the listening people what your podcast is all about and why you do it. <laughs> it's like Wogan. I've brought you on to talk and now I want you to haul your product. Um, Absolutely. Just don't do it Ollie Reed style. <laughs> wild thing. I, <laughs> I do um, the podcast Who Trial, where every week we put a different episode of Doctor Who on trial. Somebody comes in and prosecutes or defends, and I play devil's advocate. And it's nowhere near as well thought through or analytical as this is going to be. <laughs> but you, a bit like a bit like us with Hark, you've got um, such a massive amount of stories to draw on for yes. that podcast. Yeah, it's just going to keep going forever. 
you can, and of course with Doctor Who, the amount of spin-off stuff as well, you could be doing that until you're until you're drunk. I'm, I'm not doing. I'm not doing the spin-off stuff. I'm not. not, not. <laughs> Wait until someone says they want to defend the stage shows, and you have to. <laughs> so yeah, you can find us on uh, Twitter at Who Trial, and obviously iTunes and all the other places that you download the fabulous Hark podcast Thank from. You. Yes, and do have a listen and start with my episode because I was on it, <laughs> and you did very well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, I will come back soon and I'll try and choose something equally as difficult to defend. I'd just like to say that I, I feel, I thought, you know, normally when I do my podcast, people say, we want you to watch this. And it turns out to be shit Doctor Who. And you hmm. did that to me as well. And then you said to me, and I want you to watch a Hitchcock movie for Hark. And I thought, brilliant. I'm away here. And it was the birds. So what makes you say that then? Let's let's have not an opening statement, but no. let's set out your stall in regards to this because you like Hitchcock. I do. I am. I am a Hitchcock fan. I do. Um, one of the many things that I do is I teach film studies, and you can't do film studies these days without heavily getting into auteur theory. And that basically started with Truffaut and his mates looking at Hitchcock because Hitchcock has these obsessive interests that you can't get away from. Indeed. And the birds is an interesting case because it sort of gets a pass because it's Hitchcock. And yeah. everybody goes, Hitchcock's always great and he always does these things and he's brilliant. And they say, but you can't judge the birds because the special effects aren't very good and they've not aged well. My argument would be that it's the film that hasn't aged well. And there's two people to blame for that, one of whom is Hitch himself and the other of whom is Evan Hunter. And Ooh. now I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Ed McBain fan. Uh, that's your fault. You did that to <laughs> me. That's my mission in life. <laughs> I, you know how they say that success has many fathers but failure is an orphan? <laughs> yeah, this is the deformed Victorian uncle who's hidden in the attic and is only allowed out to drool at visitors every now and again at the dark of midnight because it gets very interesting how Hunter and Hitchcock, who seem to have a really good working relationship in this, they then fall out in Marnie, but the reception at the time of the birds wasn't good and they actually go for each other quite significantly, laying the blame at each other's doors. Hunter was a very proud man of the work he did, and whenever he was challenged, he would quite happily go on the attack. Mm. He wouldn't just sort of rationally argue. He was a very passionate, very uh, very Italian man, as his friend mm. Otto described him to me. And so he would be quite happy to stand up for himself, yeah. even if later on he backed down or he, he mellowed a little bit. So it doesn't surprise me, really. What do we know about the reception of the birds in general once it was it was released? It was released at the end of March in 1963. Yeah, the now the two primary sources, if you like, for the history teacher head on that I've got for it is from uh, a cinefastique, cinefantastic. <laughs> there, I tripped over myself there. Uh, cinefantastique. Like a new word you invented. <laughs> a new portmanteau for us to use. Uh, cinefantastique article in 1980 where both Hunter and Hitchcock talk about the reception of the birds and yeah. it it was cold it was it it did not take off it gained a reputation later as hitchcock's reputation increased because this is straight after psycho 
this yeah, is his, long, is no, this is his follow-up. So he's he's just suddenly burst out with this cheap little thing that he's knocked off using his TV crew. And this is the yeah. big follow-up. And it left the audiences cold. And Hitchcock yeah. blames the script. And Hunter blames the direction and the changes to the script. Indeed. And yeah, one of the, the sources I've got is, is the book Me and Hitch by Evan Hunter, mm. which he wrote in the 90s which admittedly reading through if you try and add up some of the dates and things is a it's a bit hit and miss in, t- his, in terms of his recollections yeah even though he says he's writing from his own notes but that can be forgiven because what a lot of the book is is reproduction of letters between him and hitch or him and hitch's assistant peggy mm. etc and you can hear that the relationship's good in general hunter knows what he has to do to sort of keep his job but you, there's a you can sort of almost hear the gritted teeth in some of the letters between them mm. and that's very interesting you know document to read and that's the contemporary making of it that's a foreshadowing isn't it of the big fallout over marnie where hunter yes. will not do what's asked of him and that leads yeah. to him being fired and it's quite interesting that I, this is not really within the remit of talking about the birds but we've talked before about Oh, which one is it? Uh, the heckler and the sex scene yeah. in the heckler, which makes you think a bit, oh. And then to find that it was the rape scene in Marnie that Hunter drew the line at is quite interesting. Yes, yeah, certainly the 87th Precinct books and, and some of the other things he wrote, he's not frightened of, of going all the way with the gritty realism and the, and the mm-hmm. sort of the nastiness. And to be f- fair, often misogyny as well. Mm. It's interesting that when he was doing the job of a screenwriter, he was trying to look for what he considered to be the best solution for making something that the audience would enjoy yeah. and leave having <laughs> some sympathy left for the characters you're supposed to have shared this journey with. And and Hitch was like, no, I want it this way. Yeah. And I must say that Marnie's never been one of the, the Hitchcock films I've ever really wanted to watch over and over. No. By any means, I think I've only seen it once. No. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting... Yeah, like you say, McBain might have written the script in a different way to Evan Hunter, as it were. Yeah. Although, here we go, a bit of auteur theory. It is noticeable that there are a couple of Hunter's little preoccupations sneaking through mm-hmm. in his screenplay. I don't, I don't know how you want to do this. Do you want to, do you want to talk generally or do you want to go through it chronologically or? Well, we can do a little bit of both, but first I've got a couple of little sort of information things, a couple of questions okay. for you just about in, about it in general. For, well, firstly, have you read the De Maurier story? Have you read the short story? A long time ago. Yeah. I, all I remember is that it's yokels, it's pig bins, uh, it's it Cornwall, is. and they should have kept the film there because I think uh, Tippy Hedren going, all right, my lover, would have been a lot better, frankly. Yeah. You got any love birds there, my dear? <laughs> Oh, dear. I read it again uh, last night to uh, revise for this. And it's actually a fantastic short story. De Maurier is a a fantastic writer. Yeah. And Hitchcock's adaptation of Rebecca is a phenomenal film Mm. in terms of it being a period piece and being eerie and and unsettling. And that's similarly to the story of the birds is sort of set on a wild coastal area of Cornwall. It's understandable why it was only a trigger for the story, really. Although there's more... I think in the film than people say there is sometimes. There's a lot lifted out there. There's the the uh, the birds coming down the chimney. There's uh, the the sequence at the end where they're boarded in. 
there's, there's the uh, attack on the other farmer yeah as well. and finding the body uh, yeah there's there's lots of stuff that um either hitch has told hunter to put in or hunter has decided to take himself yeah, and obviously indeed. the ending which i suppose we'll get on to because yeah yeah well another question then is what type of film is this because <laughs> how do you define what a hitchcock film is because everyone goes psycho is the horror movie mm. This isn't a horror movie, I don't think, but it's got horror elements to it. Okay, buckle yourself in. <laughs> All right, I'll sit tight. I am of the opinion that most crime novels and most police procedurals as well actually follow the structure of the horror genre mm -hmm. because they are very much in the same mould. They are both conservative small c conservative whereas this is normality here is the disruptive influence the outside evil and it doesn't yeah. matter whether it's a burglar it doesn't matter whether it's a mugger it doesn't matter whether it's dracula it's still an outside evil that impacts on normality and disrupts the norm and then yeah. the norm must be defended and re-established at the end one of one of my touchstones for this is i am assuming that you certainly and i imagine your listeners are familiar with sapphire and steel i would imagine some of our uh, british listeners would be yeah. yes it's not something i know particularly well in fact i did talk about it where it, it, some coincidence cropped up on one of the oh yeah i remember now there was some nonsense where we ended up calling it sapphire and seal and it was about <laughs> something I, I can't even remember why arf, arf, but arf. that's that's mystery investigation in a way isn't it it is but the guy who wrote that, P.J. Hammond, also wrote an episode of the long-running, um, almost soap, if you like, The Bill. Indeed. And he wrote it like Sapphire and Seal from the point of view of the family where two policemen come in and are outside disruptive influences. And this, again, is here. And I, this is a horror movie. It doesn't sell itself as a horror movie. It looks kind of like a thriller or almost like a, a an airport novel, you know, Airport 77 and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it is very much about an inexplicable outside evil which comes in. And then there's another little thing, which is this idea of moral culpability. One thing I've noticed in the 87th Precinct ones is there's, there's nobody who's innocent, really. Yes everybody's got something bubbling away under the surface. Everybody's got a sin, which is that Italian thing, that, that slightly Catholic thing. And because of the way this film is structured and this film ends, it is actually a little difficult to avoid the reading that this is her fault, Tippi Hedren's character. Yes, that's definitely a big implication. Yeah, she has brought this, possibly with her unbridled female sexuality, she has brought this upon these people. It's her fault because you lack that bigger picture. The film as it's shown now is very much here in this place, and it's her. Yeah. She is a socialite. She has she has no particular responsibility. Yeah. She can do what she wants, goes where she, where she wants to. She's known for doing things like jumping nude into the Trevi Fountain yeah. or whatever it was. And she does get the, the woman in the Tides restaurant yeah. basically attacking her. Why? You started this. Mm -hmm. You're evil. Oh, indeed. And it's 
it's yeah the moral culpability thing is always very interesting when you've got that sort of lack of resolution as it were now where it gets slightly more complicated is that we're then dealing with hitchcock's own fetishes about Mm. dealing with I, i think it's fair to say that he seems to find female sexuality threatening and that's him that's not hunter that's his oh, definition. And especially when it comes to these blonde um, ice goddesses who he needs to see broken down. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely something going on with that character. There's that really interesting sequence in the dunes. Do you believe Hunter that he had nothing to do with that, that that was ad-libbed? When they went up the the hill in the yeah, and the, at the party, and she and you suddenly get this sequence where she's going, uh, I'm, I'm putting a Korean boy through, through school, and my mother left me when I was eleven, and and it doesn't fit with anything else. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't. And Hunter was absolutely, mm. he was outraged by that. He was on set when that happened, and Rod Taylor came up to him and said, "Have you seen this? Did did you write this?" And he was like, "No." <laughs> And he approached Hitch, and Hitch was like, well, it's there now, they're going to do it. And then he finds out afterwards that Hitch wrote it. And I think there's some evidence since that to confirm that fact, that it's in some one of Hitch's annotated scripts yeah. or letters or something. And so he wasn't, he wasn't endearing himself to Hitch by that point by saying, what's this tripe? You can't make them go... This weird scene where suddenly they're this unrealistic uh, Sandy June yeah. with, for some reason, with glasses and a drink of, of some sort. Of Martini, which she's downing before she drives back the evening. Yeah, she That's says, saying, she says yeah. I, mustn't, I mustn't have any more. Oh, and then, <laughs> then straight down. Starts necking it. Mind you, you would drink because it's the only way to make the character of Mitch appealing. Because he's, yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose, imagine this. Hitch's filmmaking theory is about sizzle and steak. I mean, this is very famous. The idea that the steak... Of itself, if you feed somebody a steak, they don't get the full benefit. They have to hear it sizzle first. They need to see it cook. Yes. And he, he's great at that. You look at Psycho, nothing happens in Psycho for ages. Look at Alien as well. There's a perfect example. Nothing happens for an hour. The same with this. I wrote down the timings. It's, I'm just, you're going to hear me turning the notes over while I try and find things that actually happen. Right? <laughs> it's 25 minutes before we get first blood. Yeah, yeah. It's 47 minutes before the bird flies into the house. 52 minutes before the party gets attacked. One hour before we get a decent bit of gore with the eyes pecked out. Yeah, and it, it takes ages. And that's to halfway go. through the film. Yeah, though, it's so, two hours. You know, you've had four beats. And imagine this long opening se- sequence if Mitch had been played by Cary Grant and... Uh, I've forgotten the character's name. That She's the main character, and that's how much of an impact she made on me. Melanie Daniels. Melanie was played by Eve Marie Saint. Just take those It would be two. very different. So yeah. uh, this this is something that obviously Hitch probably wanted Cary Grant. He probably wanted Grace Kelly as well, mm. but she'd given up by that point. Although obviously when Marnie comes along, there's a bit of speculation yeah. there. I think it's interesting. Hunter's idea was to do it like a screwball comedy at the start, yeah. in the style of the Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn type of thing. Because that's what he'd grown up with, and that's what it feels like—that sequence in the um, the sequence in the pet shop and everything. But it's shot very slow, and the two leads are wooden. Uh, it's a funny one. I quite like that sequence because it's downplayed. I think it keeps it in reality. 
I think it, the film would be much harder to watch if you had to deal with Cary Grant doing some of the stuff that Rod Taylor does later on, because Cary Grant can't keep his mouth shut and he wouldn't <laughs> expect to. He liked to have a lot of script True. and a lot of talking, True. a lot of fast. He wouldn't have been able to get tiptoe silently from the house to the garage to get the car no. without making so many quips he'd have been ripped to shreds. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, there's there's some wonderfully odd things in it like him going and asking for the lovebirds and him being very specific about, i want a couple of lovebirds i want ones that aren't whores but not frigid i want yeah, I, I want them to be just a little friendly uh, yeah there's some nice stuff in there but again he he does not convince me as a, a lawyer who's out there defending hoods as a very young veronica cartwright says indeed veronica cartwright of course who is in alien mm-hmm. later on yeah uh, there's a little link back to those that you mentioned before yeah she does a lot of crying in Alien as well, actually. Like she does, she does in this film. <laughs> she, she's she's, she's, she's a lot of horror. She does the same thing right the way through at the X Files, and Bosch. She's playing the same character pretty much. Oh, I've still never seen any of Bosch, so that's uh... Bosch is very interesting because it feels it lives in the same world as the eighty seventh precinct. I believe so. Yeah, I from can, what I've heard, I can feel it. I can feel Harry Bosch coming over and talking to Corella on a on an extradition case. Yeah. No, I must must uh, watch that at some point. Or, and read the books as well, because I think they're based on books, aren't they? The, the, the books aren't, aren't that good. Um, I'm sort of ploughing my way through them. I don't know if they get a lot better later on, because it's written like 20, so there must be something people are reading them. But the, yeah. they're certainly not grabbing me by my interest, as it were. Fair enough. Just on the subject then of, of what type of film this mm, is. Sorry. Is there is there a an argument to be made that it's a monster movie? Yeah, I think so. I think I think you can put this. You could swap. <laughs> Sorry, I just my head has just suddenly filled with Michael Caine going. I can't believe it's the bees. They've always been yeah. our friend. And you could make this is an Irwin Allen monster movie. It is that sort of thing. Yeah, because I mean it's coming in at nineteen sixty three, but the, that's off the back of the best part of twenty years of B movies, which were them. Ants, yes, yeah. that's the sort of thing. Um, a tradition that carries on into sort of the writing of those pulpy horror writers with slugs and crabs and yeah, good old Guy and Smith. The the interesting thing I think is that they take from the De Maurier just no reasoning whatsoever. And there was a scene written, wasn't there, where they're discussing the fact that this is just hate, and it's mm. like they're being whipped up by some sort of a, a leader bird to hate humanity but that was never it's not that it was cut it was never filmed is that right it's something like that yeah it's uh, there's a lot of speculation about these things and what hunter says was there and or never made it past the the discussions in the office phase which was hit one of hitchcock's techniques for writing his films was to literally sit face to face with the author every day and say tell me the story and, and that's what a lot of what um, Hunter recounts in this book, telling this story over and over again and yeah. then having to retell it to his assistants at the end of the day and then writing it down and blah, 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 backwards and forwards. But yeah, no motivation is revealed for the bird attacks other than, as we say, the hints about it being female sexuality, this outsider bringing something mm. that you wouldn't expect to find in a little calm fishing village. Because again, I mean, it's interesting it's almost a, a very different sort of movie because she's a scary character. She meets this guy for 20 seconds and then mm. finds out where he lives 
and drives to his apartment and then drives 60 miles and then rents a boat and breaks into his house. This is not a normal woman. No, and also she knows how to operate the boat. She's completely <laughs> confident with all of these things that she does. She's done so much weird stuff in her life <laughs> in the name of amusing herself that, you, you know, it's amazing that she ends up sort of being attacked and falling victim to the birds because she seems pretty capable. Yeah, fighting them a, off as quite well. A sc- yeah, yeah, quite scary. I did actually write a note on, on the back of my first page of, of, of notes, which just basically says, there's a lot of breaches of data protection in the early part of this film. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't happen today. No. You know, she rings up rings up to get his license plate. The guy in the hallway says, oh, he lives over here. She gets to the to Bodega Bay and the guy in the post office says, oh, and they live over there and they're called that. Why don't you go and see the school teacher who then tells her a load more stuff? <laughs> You just people are falling over themselves to reveal the uh, personal yeah. details of these people. GDPR, GDPR. The, I've got, I've got two interesting. Well, for a given value of interesting, about why it's set in Bodega Bay, and obviously Go you've got the small town um, with the outside evil coming in thing, but also there's a practical reason for it because they knew there was going to be so much optical compositing that yeah. they wanted somewhere that was flat, where there's no hills, there's no mountains, there's no trees, and the ground uh, the ground when you see it, it's either a horizon of sea or it's sand. Yeah, and that, but I, that does also make for some beautiful sort of wide landscape shots as well. Ah, and one of, ah, uh, ah, <laughs> I was just going to mention the name, St. Albert of Whitlock, which right. if you if people don't know who he is, Albert Whitlock, was pretty much one of the greatest matte painters in the business. He worked yeah. with Hitch in England and went with him over there. And every time you see a gorgeous landscape in this, it's not real. Albert no, painted he, it. His painting of, of clouds and things like yeah. that are particularly um, effective. Yeah. I, I, I say shot in the sense of, of the, the entire picture, including yeah. the compositing and stuff like that. One thing I think is very interesting, and again, this is another thing where people say, oh, well, they chose to move it away from Cornwall. They've managed to pick a part of America that looks more like Cornwall than Cornwall does. (laughs) And it's got a fantastic variety of yokel American accents as well. I mean, we have to talk about the sequence in the bar. Oh, and which, the tides, yeah, the tides restaurant. Which is the, the most hunter section of the entire movie. Yeah, he does I, like those sorts of things. It's beautiful. It's fantastically written. It's brilliantly performed. And again, it has to be said, Taylor and Hedron are the weakest performers in that little sequence. I think it's fair to say. Um, because all of those people are sketching in those little characters beautifully. Shall we try and do a quick, sort of, not quick, well, let's go through the film more or less sequentially. Sure. We've sort of talked a little bit about the opening sequence in this pet shop. Yeah. A pet shop which, to me, looks like it must be breaking so many laws about <laughs> endangered species and import licenses and the like. And who cleans out those cages with those thousands upon thousands of birds? It's probably that woman who was you know, really upset about not having the minor bird in stock. She looked a bit frazzled, like yeah. she spends her days <laughs> up like, to her elbows in dung. Like Hercules cleaning out the stables. Yeah. Um, Although, yeah, just before that, the very first shot as she walks across the road, mm. there is an amazing edit in that where she walks off location and into a studio yeah. as she passes through the pillar. Yeah. And it is, it's a fantastic sort of technical thing where his, his editor's done that. It's, it, and, oh, sorry, go on. 
well, yeah, it's just that she walks into the studio and, and gets wolf whistled by a small child, mm. which is how she got the job. And right. She was in a, a television uh, commercial, and in it, she gets wolf whistled, and she turns around, she gives that look, and Hitch saw that, and that's why he cast her. Uh, so yeah, Hitch Hitch had to recreate that entire moment at the top of the film. Yeah, because she's an unknown in terms of motion picture acting at this point, isn't she? She is, and it's interesting that Hitch has obviously cast her because of how she looks. And if you notice, he lights her the same way, because Hitch always works in studio as much as possible. He does yeah. as little location work as possible, so he can control all the elements. And she's always lit with a key light three quarters from the... If she's facing out towards us, She's lit three quarters uh, screen left all the time. And it, that changes, that gives her a very delicate shape to the face. But it means that she's always got her, her head tilted up slightly. Did you notice? In, yes, indeed. Yeah. And it looks like she's having a stroke the whole time. <laughs> it's, it's, it sometimes comes across quite unfortunate, although they do, I think there's quite a clever play on that in the sequence where she's coming back on the boat. Yeah. And she's trying to make herself look calm look alluring yeah and the moment she's setting herself into that pose <laughs> in the real world of the film yeah bang seagulls yeah. in there seagull on the head absolutely and lots of kensington gore you know of i've written down that that is that blood is hammer red yeah and there is no, that is not accidental it can't be now this is 63 hammer Frankenstein and Dracula hit America around 57. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm sure that that's... He's not chasing the same audience, but there's that same feel there that we're having to maybe just go that little bit more... Yeah, redder than red. Mm. It's, it's, it's stark. It stands out. It's not the, the reality of it, which would be a sort of a dark graze. Yeah. Although I, I suspect it makes some of the later horror more effective because the sequence in the farm well yeah. let's let's we'll get to that yeah later. okay so we have the meat cute in the pet shop yeah which where he's mansplaining the evils of pet shops to her <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's he, he's just he's he's not even wooden because that's an insult to wood it's oh. it's like somebody's got a side of beef and carved a face into it and oh, then he just seems i seems like a nice fellow right <laughs> He does, but he's not equipped for this. He's equipped to be riding a horse and having gunfights. That's what he should be doing. Or that's, even... that's why he looks more comfortable when he's got his neckerchief on. <laughs> and his cable knit sweater. Yeah. Indeed. That's not a good look. But yeah, he, he, he does not seem to suit that. And it does feel a bit Cary Grantish, a bit screwballish, and it doesn't seem to suit him. It's funny. I think Hunter sort of regretted. He sort of, in his book, he keeps saying brackets the blame could be laid at me <laughs> for saying we'll do it as a screwball comedy because yeah. that was his idea because he thought the contrast between that and then the horror would be effective and that's obviously what tickled hitch's fancy mm-hmm. as it were in terms of the script but he does his book is very much a bit of regret it seems for the things that happened in this but he wouldn't have had any say over the casting no. for instance i've got a quote where he says and this is quite interesting and as soon as as soon as you hear this you go Oh, yeah, you're right. And this ties back to you talking about what kind of film is it, right? So this is a quote from Hunter, uh, Evan Hunter in 1980 or 1979. 
I believe Jaws is the film that the birds might have been. Yes, I was thinking that today, actually, when I was sort of pondering on it. Yeah. I mean, Jaws is a fantastic film, one of my absolute favourite films of all time. Yep. And it has been for most of my life since I saw it when I was probably too young to be watching it. Yeah. And that, because that definitely, there's got a reason it's got that reputation. It does the job it set out to do. Yeah perfectly I, and that's the word I, I this is something i say to people a lot and they always laugh at me until i get them tell them to think about it which is jaws is damn close to being the perfect film it does not yeah. put a foot wrong anywhere and yeah they struggled to make it they they fought against the odds the technology that you know but they invented new f- cinematic methods sound techniques all sorts mm. to make that film work which, to be fair, is very similar to the story here, because as you've alluded to, it's it's basically tell me the story, tell me the story, tell me the story. Well, actually, you should do it in the hitch for you. Tell me the story, and that was Jabba the Hutt. I don't know why that was my was, hitch voice. Yeah. <laughs> Bring me a blonde, and then Evan Hunter went away and wrote it, and he's very clear about the fact that at no point did anybody say to him, "This is what we can do." Think about the practicalities. He was just told, "Go away, write it." And then they found a way to film it. Yes. Which required brand new technological advances, a completely different method of compositing on screen to any that had been done before to try and avoid the problem of the fringing with a moving mat. Yes. So this is where they bring in Ub Iwerks. I don't know how you actually say his surname, but this is one of Disney's longtime collaborators. In in fact, basically invented Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Made Disney's fame by being the animator who did all the work yeah. well disney did a bit of the ideas stuff and did a bit of the showman stuff but he's the leading light in in these new techniques and he has the one studio where they can possibly do yeah do the effective matting of the birds the animation onto the live action i i think yeah it, it's, it's worth just for those people who aren't aware of how films are made it's worth just considering the sheer difficulty of getting these shots they have a second unit that goes out to the san francisco dump and shoots seagulls thousands of feet of film which the editor then has to look through and write down so we've got a shot here of a bird going left we've got a shot of two birds flying up we've got all that so they've got all those then they've got the bird trainers capturing birds and trying to train them which is astonishing when you think about that the sheer weight of difficulty in training <laughs> all those crows to sit on the bloody bars. Oh, yeah. Which, and again, but again, they realized they couldn't do it. So they trained some to sit on those bars that they built next to the school. And then they built the bars again in studio and put more birds on it and then composited the two. You look at that shot, you don't even realize it's composited. Yeah. And then in order to preserve the the illusion that they all take off together, they had them all trained to take off, but some of them went early. So they trim out 15 foot of film. Just Which so, is you know, a just, few milliseconds, yeah, isn't it? But it's, it, uh, and just, yeah, the, the, the problems with getting this to work, and they, they built early animatronic birds, which turned up in like one or two shots, and by God, you can spot them. <laughs> you can see them and they're awful but all of this comes down to the fact that hitch basically just said let's write it it'll be fine 
and yeah, and I suppose with me talking about Jaws and some of the stuff that happened there, some of the stuff that happened in Jaws tend, I think, had a longer lasting legacy on modern film in terms of the day to day filmmaking, yeah. sound wise particularly. Yeah. But one of the innovations in The Birds, which mm. we've not mentioned, is the quote unquote music. Yes, indeed. Or rather, the lack of it, because his longtime composer collaborator Bernard Herrmann does get a credit. He does in this film, but there is no music in it other than a bit of diegetic mm. stuff that goes on as well but it's in that rustlety rustlety thing that goes on for about half an hour it's interesting <sighs> which and that <laughs> that was apparently uh evan's choice because it was his children's favorite song i understand is that right uh, i've not read anything to do with that mm. but may maybe maybe but it's quite interesting that they they use the sound of the birds as music herman actually ran them through a very early synthesizer and uh, something which generated their tonal sounds, and they use that to alter the bird sounds to create. Yeah, so this, this is um, weird. Two Germans. Yeah. Well, if you want to do something weird with electronics post Second World War, <laughs> find some Germans. <laughs> and this is Oscar Saller and, and Remy Gassman are using a thing called the Troutonium, which is a, a great name for an instrument. It. Please tell me it wasn't basically Patrick Troughton in a box and they just put birds in with him and he clubbed them. I'd like to tell you that, but the sad... Tr- no, it's... <laughs> oh, my it's, giddy it was, it was based on the sound of Bert Troutman, the footballer. Um, I don't know anything about football. That was just an attempt to curry favour with the people who do. The specific grunting noises that he made when taking penalties in the 1962 Cup. Uh, football um <laughs> but yeah the troutonium was this thing that had been developed since the late 20s and it's a fantastically weird machine with instead of keys it's got sort of switches and a long sort of ribbon that you move your hand up and down to produce your tone so you can produce sort of infinite tones between notes and sort of thing and you can it's full of oscillators and things and they use that it's weird I, it's a weird bit of kit it's I, fantastic. i'm literally just looking at a picture of it now it looks like a Hammond organ mated with the Enigma machine. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's That's phenomenal bit of kit. Delia Derbyshire would have given a soul for one of them. That's and it incredible. Seems to me, from my research, that Oscar Saller and uh, I think one other person basically just was the only people that ever used it. And after Oscar Saller died in, I think, the 2000s or something, he, was, he lived quite a while, he never trained anyone on it. It basically just exists as a bit of kit now. It, it, it was never the the secret was never passed on. Wow, it's and it, it it it. I think that's one of the problems because the film feels we're so used to music cueing us in on our emotional responses and also controlling the pace to a lot uh, to an extent that the yeah, lack yeah. of music makes this first hour drag when you're not having anything actually going on. Quite possibly, yeah. I think, obviously, in Hitch's mind, this was a very arty film. This was going to be his big arty achievement as much mm. as it was, it was going to be his big successful follow-up horror movie or whatever. Yeah. And Hunter seems to be saying, whether it's in retrospect or not, I don't know, seemed to be saying, well, we could see that it perhaps wasn't going to work while we were doing it, 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 I said that perhaps we should have sound, this, that, and the other. And certainly audiences seem to have reacted in a, mm. in a way that suggests they were expecting something else. Yeah. It, too much sizzle, not enough steak. There's All the steak is loaded into the last 20 minutes, really. And yeah. the, the sizzle is unsatisfying. Well, if we jump through some of this stuff that happens, basically she 
rushes off like a psycho to follow him how, up to where he lives. How sexually frustrated is she? That can she really <laughs> not get a date? Into I know San Francisco is the gay capital of America at this point, but can she really not find any other straight guy than driving sixty mile up the coast to chase this bloke? She drives quite erratically as well. I think we're supposed to get the idea that she's like, oh, just. I'm just going to do it. I'm not particularly good at driving. I'm just going to do 60 miles an hour as quick as possible. <laughs> the Whatever. birds, the lovebirds. Now, th- just, this is a be- brilliant gag. It's a fantastic sight gag. It's airplane worthy. She's got a cage with two birds in it, and they're swaying from side to side as she goes around the corners. And it's it's a lovely little gag. But again, from a filmmaking point of view, the sheer amount of hassle they've had to go through to make these little birds, stuffed birds, mount them on a gimbal and have some presumably a thread which pulls them on. And just for a a little gag is astonishing. He knew what he liked. (laughs) Shameless use of back projection. He loves his back projection, does Hitch. Again, because he liked doing stuff in studios. He wasn't going to go out and actually do it was he it looks yeah. very nice on the on the blu-ray i must say it's 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 very well balanced it looks good i mean you can still tell it's back projection but it's it looks pretty good on the blu-ray because i did not watch it on the blu-ray i watched it on a, a a very bad off-air recording it it seems obvious to me that they've desaturated the colors a lot to keep the mood quite low and yeah. to help sell that sort of horror movie sort of feel does that come across on the blu-ray or is the color balance different I don't think they've messed around with it too much. It still looks desaturated, mm. and that is a deliberate choice by Hitch yeah. because he, he chose to film somewhere that turns out to be a really bright and sunny fishing village. Mm. So he, t- <laughs> he turns up there. I found a newspaper article from the New York Times, I think it was, reporting on it, and it was sort of saying, oh, he's up here filming this, but the quotes from him are him, just him moaning about the fact that he's going to have to do loads of work in post <laughs> to, to fix the fact that it just looks like a really lovely, nice place to go for your holidays. It, it does look like a lovely place. I would quite happily go there. Uh, it's yeah. Amity. It looks like Amity. It's nice, that same sort of seaside lovely, feel. Lovely fresh air, lovely fresh air, nice seafood. I suppose I have to actually, at this point, sort of state a bias here. Go on. Which is I live near the sea. I hate seagulls. I actually spent a day trying to feed the ducks today and having to throw rocks at seagulls to keep them away. So I have, I have a natural... This film really gets to be on a visceral level. <laughs> yeah, well, they are, and well, certainly in Liverpool as well. At the moment, we are awash with seagulls and baby seagulls, and it, it's a noisy place at the moment. It is a noisy place. Are they? Are you finding that they are getting more brazen and more aggressive with every generation? Well, you know, I don't know whether we breed a special sort in Liverpool or a bit harder. You know, that's the sort. <laughs> certainly, we do we with our magpies. Blades and jackets. I saw a magpie today with a piece of toast in its mouth. <laughs> and the other day it. I saw a magpie with a twig in its mouth that looked like a massive cigar. It looked like the godfather of magpies. It was brilliant. <laughs> I hope your first egg is a masculine egg. <laughs> On the subject of people who aren't Rod Taylor and Tippy Hedron, <laughs> the, the supporting cast, what do you reckon in general to them? I mean, you mentioned before that they're generally very good. Yeah, I, I think... Um, the mother does as much as she can with what she's given to work with, Jessica Tandy. Yeah, she, I think she struggles from a lack of sort of stuff to get her teeth into. 
Yeah, I think, and I, I honestly don't know the actor's name, I'm afraid. The lady with the dark hair who plays Mitch's ex-girlfriend, Annie. That's, yeah, Suzanne Plachette. Now, she, I, I don't know her name. I recognise her voice. She's done a lot of voice work, I think, in other stuff. She's brilliant. I think yeah. she's absolutely fantastic. She she is so much better than Tippi Hedren. I'm sorry, Tippi, I know you're still alive. Maybe you're listening to this. She is so much better than Tippi Hedren. It's a real shame that the casting's not the other way around. Yeah, she was offered a role in Marnie as well, but she was already fed up by that point of knowing that she was never going to be the lead in a Hitchcock because he was only interested in the blondes. But I think she's got a real sort of... I don't want to say pizzazz isn't the right word, but she's got a real grasp of of that character. She's got charisma. When she turns up, she's got self-possession and poise and sex appeal. And you're sort of thinking, Mitch, dude... Why are you why are you hassling women in pet shops when she literally lives down the road and she's got a good job? Yeah, and she can garden. Yeah, as I uh, you know approach my fortieth birthday, I've spent a lot of time gardening. Gardening's a big thing for me now. Now that's that's a that's a key aspect. You see, you, see, you would go for Annie Hayworth because you know she's she's a gardener. Yeah. she can grow veg. And seeing as we're talking about basically an apocalyptic end of the world scenario here, you'd be much better off with her because she could grow turnips. <laughs> all, all, yeah. all, all Tippy Hedren's going to be able to do is to dance naked in fountains, which is fine, but isn't a survival skill in the ringing your dad world. isn't a survival skill. No, absolutely. <laughs> <I know. laughs> like she expects him to sort it out or do something about it. I love yeah. all of the supporting characters who refuse to believe that there's anything going on. So you've got the sheriff, you've got the little old lady who's an ornithologist. Oh, she's brilliant. Fantastic. It's it, they're just birds. They're just flying around. It's fine. And as I said, that entire sequence in the restaurant with the, the mother, with the kids, with the dad who's drinking to get away from the mother with the kids, with the sailor, the gruff old sea dog, the little old lady who's the ornithologist, the barkeep. It, it's fantastic. It crackles. It shoots from person to person. That feels like hunter doesn't yeah, it That's i think it. you're right because I, 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 it's not the sort of thing that you would find in the carrie grant catherine hepburn type yeah. of things because it would all be focused on them and yeah. it would be it would be that back and forth bang 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 this is this is people yeah doing stuff in in reality with the, the a, a trope of you see it in the McBain books and i assume throughout the, the hunter books those i've read bear bear this out the like the character of the doom monger in the corner the we're all you know yeah. it's the end of the world yeah and the fact that he's cheerful about it <laughs> that's very much a McBain thing uh and again I, I it's one of those things one of the worst things you can do in any form of criticism is to say well it'd be better if it was this because that's just lazy you gotta deal with what's in front of you but there is a version of this that's like the mist where it's right. just them stuck in that in that restaurant with Indeed, those characters. Yeah, I would watch an hour of that much more than I would watch an hour of Rod and Tippy fail to flirt with each other. <laughs> yeah. If we take that we've just talked about the Tides restaurant scene, so we basically we have these amazing characters. Yeah. And then we have the amazing action sequence with the ex- the explosions and stuff. Yeah. And that great aerial shot as well. Can I, I just say, anybody that's got hold of the film and anybody who's good at making GIFs, I am begging you, 
Tippy's face when the gas catches fire. Yeah. Oh, right. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I do, yeah. Because Hitch keeps cutting from her face to the fire and then back to her face, but her face is on a different angle. Then back to the fire and then back to Tippy. But each time she's doing this weird goldfishy kind of shock face, that needs to be a gif. That that has to be done because <laughs> you could use that in any online discussion loads of times. That has to be done. Well, someone out there should do it because I've only got it on Blu-ray, so I can't rip that. <laughs> uh, it takes us up to the, the denouement, which is the, the bit from the book where they're basically nailing themselves in the in the cottage to try yeah. and escape. Can I... And the, can I go on? Uh, I, no, I just want to say there's one bit in this that feels like proper... 100% proof Hitchcock and is very well done. Actually, there's two bits. The first bit is her sitting outside the school with that song going on in the background and the birds just appearing bit by bit. Yeah, the, the suspense. One yeah. of the really good suspense sequences. That's, that's great and that's really well done. Although, how bloody dopey is she that she keeps looking in the wrong direction? You can hear the birds behind her. They're not being quiet, but she keeps looking off to the left. Is it what's over there? Oh, nothing. Oh, nothing. Oh, nothing. And then suddenly, oh, my stars, there's a lot of birds. And then the other one is just before they find the corpse of Annie, where they walk oh, up the streets. I know, and she's dead in her garden. I know. But there's a neat trick there as well, which is at the one-hour mark, we see the other farmer, whose name has now... Fawcett. 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 Who's had his eyes pecked out. And then when we find Annie, Rod, Mitch, covers her face so we don't see it. And that's Mm. really nice because that then allows our imaginations to create something worse. And even worse is that we then see, of course, that uh, his sister was Mm. with her and saw it all and has seen that corpse sitting there on the steps. Yeah. Which makes me think, if they were ever to do a sequel and there was some... Uh, I use this word advisedly, shitty sequel made at some point uh, <laughs> that no one knows anything about and no one cares about, although Tippy does turn up in it, not as Melanie Daniels. If they were to do a, a sequel, Jaws-style sequel, so as much as Jaws is brilliant, the sequels are a whole other story. <laughs> the real The Birds 2 would be about Veronica Cartwright's character grown up, yeah. having to face the birds again and as, as long, they came for her. And as long as she then fled to the Caribbean... And they followed yeah. her there, probably because of a voodoo curse. And Michael Caine was there as a drunken pilot. And you basically got the birds fall. That would be brilliant. Yeah, yeah that's what I, that's what I'd do for a sequel anyway. Definitely, I think so. And you never know. And he, There is a good good scene with someone in an attic in this, so Michael Caine might be <laughs> Completely interested. false, completely false. There you go. Go on, on Twitter if you don't know what that is. <laughs> So yeah, the, the the under siege, the base under siege, to coin a phrase, at the end, is is quite interestingly done because again, it makes good use of silence. There's long yeah, sequences it's... where there's no noise, and it, it, again, it's just building up the tension. It definitely it's it, there is a long protra- a tr- protracted time of that, and it starts to get to a point where you can't help but notice that you are noticing yeah. that there is no sound, yeah. and that's disconcerting why does she go up to the attic i mean well, like, like she's heard yeah. the noise but why why go up there i know it's it's a funny one in the script i think the same question was asked of hunter when he'd written this and he was saying suggesting that the sound she was hearing was 
something perhaps structural and she was going to investigate it and she ch- and she was checking all the rooms to make sure they're okay. Yeah. Whereas this, it's actually, it's clearly the sound of birds. Yeah. And she's up there and getting PTSD off this mad attack. Although in Hunter's version, she opens the door and there's like an owl silhouetted staring at her, which would have been brilliant, you know, proper I, it, right. Blade Runner-esque. <laughs> which bird frightens you the most? Well, this is one of my questions I'd like to, you know, I put this out on the internet today to say, in the film, you obviously have a fairly limited amount of birds in it. You've got basically sparrows, you've got crows, you've got seagulls. And they all look like mean enough when you put enough of them together. The crows especially. Yeah, definitely. And so my theory is that the ones that would normally be carrion birds, if they turn to actually attacking you, they are the scary ones. That but I, I was, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to say, that, that I can go with, because uh, in the woods at the top of my road, we have a rookery, and yeah. the, the sight of about a thousand crows flying overhead of an evening is pretty, it's terrifying, and you can hear it inside the house. And if mm. they decided to turn on you, it would it would be scary. One little thing I will point out, I used to think magpies were pretty vicious, which we know they are. They're egg thieves and all the rest of it. Mm. However, I did discover the other day that magpies actually go sledging in the snow. <laughs> just for fun. They, fold, they can't be all bad. They fold their wings under themselves and they slide down banks in the snow. And it is purely for play. No other reason. Oh, well, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. So go on, carry on. little hats as well. <laughs> yeah, little bobble hats. Yeah. Little hats and scarves. <laughs> yeah, well, I put out, so what, presuming the world of the birds means that across the world, any bird has started attacking yeah. anyone. Yeah. What would be the scariest one? And I have a theory that if you were getting attacked by an emu that was determined to kill you, that would be scary. You're dead. You're dead. Oh, totally. I mean, we, but, we saw what it could yeah. do to Michael Parkinson. You have no chance. <laughs> There's a good bit of British cultural ephemera that will completely <laughs> baffle our American <laughs> listeners. One of many that features in this podcast. But uh, yeah, a couple of suggestions from folk. Uh, one of our Twitter followers, whose name appropriately is Nigel Bird, oh. suggested a, a bird called the monkey-eating eagle. I don't want to look into that anymore. It's oh. called the monkey-eating that, eagle. That seems enough. scary enough. That's enough. My friend Marie from the band Eureka, California, very good friend, suggested a bird called the lammergeer or bearded vulture, whose diet, it turns out, is 70 to 90% bone. Oh, oh. It cracks it open to get into the marrow. Does it? Oh, yeah. oh. It's a ten foot wingspan and it eats the bones of things. No, I've seen that. I've seen that on a nature program. It flies up and it drops the bone to crack yeah. it open. So it takes it waits until the other stuff's picked off the carrion and left nothing but the bone. Then it comes down and it takes it off. It was in life. All right. And I have two small children. We watch a lot of nature programs. And it flies up and it drops the bone, cracks it, and gets into the marrow that way. And it's vast. It's an enormous bird. Yeah, and our mutual friend Robin Brown and a couple of other folks suggested the cassowary, yeah. which the only note I've put down here is it's big, it's fast, and it's Australian, and that's yeah. enough. Yeah, it's basically things like that and the ostrich and the uh, and the rear, as, as I've said to you before, when, you, when they look at you and they turn and they, they, and they turn their head and they look at you, it is the Jurassic Park, Bob Peck, clever girl thing yeah. you can see the little dinosaur brain in there just going your lunch well it was in the news this past few days in fact that the dna experiments have proven that there's an even closer link than they thought between birds and dinosaurs so that's look at, no surprise look at the feet of a chicken 
Just look at the feet of a chicken, and it's it's a reptile. It's a dinosaur. Actually, you heard the man. Stop listening now. Go outside, find a chicken, <laughs> look at its feet. I have friends who keep chickens, and they're actually frightening. To... A turkey. If a turkey, <laughs> if a turkey went at you, it would do damage. You'd know about it. You would. You would. I would see. They're lucky this didn't happen at Thanksgiving. Cause... Yeah, that was it. The birds too would be the birds too. Colon Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's what it should be. Yeah, saying saying grace is not enough to save you. Right. Well, we better get on to the, sort of the ending of the film. The, the film ends very simply with they head off into the sunset. Not a happy sunset because we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I just what want, do you think? I just want yeah, to share this with you just before you get to this because I've got I've got it written down because I literally could not believe it when I heard it. That last shot, that single last shot, yeah, has thirty-two composited images in it. Blimey, for a film in nineteen sixty-three, thirty-two composites. That is phenomenal. How do they fit the all under the camera? Goodness me, for the actual print. That's a, uh, yeah. it, it, must, it must be thick. It, yeah, it's bizarre. Anyway, so yeah, so it ends with almost a Blade Runner-esque studio ending. With them driving off into the sunset and what's going to happen. So what? So what about this alternative ending? What do you think? You know, what did you find out about what it was supposed to be? Well, the, or could have been the version that I that I heard about from uh, an interview with Evan Hunter was that they would leave the town. They would then find a a roadblock, which is mentioned on the radio. Mitch hears it, doesn't he? That they're yeah. putting roadblocks around. They find the roadblock, but the soldier is dead across it. And mm. Mitch has to get out and shift the roadblock while being watched by birds. And then they drive off further and see that the birds have spread and started attacking more inland. There's certainly, from what I've read as well, he's... He certainly wanted it to carry on a bit longer and there'd be a bit more of a suggestion that this was a more global thing. Yeah, he said 10 pages is what I heard, which is about, well, the old screenplay rule of thumb is one page is one minute. So there's allegedly an extra 10 minutes there. Which was never filmed, jettisoned for that. Mm. And it's, you know, it works in its own way, but it perhaps doesn't give the suggestion that well, perhaps it heaps it more on Tippy Hedron's character's shoulders, doesn't it? It, it does. That where she is is the problem. Yeah, and it's sort of like she's brought the problem with her because we see the seagulls in the very first shot with her. Yeah. And then we see the birds going a bit tonto as she goes into the into the pet shop. And then she's the first one attacked by the seagulls, who then yeah. presumably go on to attack the ship, which we hear about where they nearly overturn it. So, yeah... If you do not get the impression that the birds have been elsewhere and done stuff elsewhere, it looks very much like it's her fault. It's on her. So we have reached in a roundabout sort of way the end of the film, Mm. but that's not the end of Evan Hunter and Hitchcock's relationship because (laughs) during the time that the film was being filmed, he was asked to adapt Marnie for Hitch. And that does not turn out well. As we've hinted at before, there was a, a... violent sex scene that hunter didn't want to do and hitch was determined to do yeah really determined to use they famously said i want to see i want to put the camera there i want to see when he sticks it in i want to see her face Mm. in a very charming sort of way and it's interesting because for the story of marnie 
that does not need to happen for the plot of the film to carry on from that point. He could just cover her with his jacket and then we fade to black and we carry on the next morning and she doesn't try and drown herself or any of that. Or she could even try and drown herself anyway. Hmm. It, it does not need that violent rape there. It doesn't need it. On their wedding night. Yeah. And it is purely there if one is to believe a certain approach to Hitchcock. It is purely there because of his desire to torture Tippi Hedren. As I said before, I'm not particularly fussed on Marnie as a film and I've never had the need to go back and revisit it. It's quite funny, really, that Hunter, Evan Hunter knew he was being fired from that. Yeah. I, I have a list of dates that I extracted from various sources. and In June of 1962, he'd already delivered a script for Marnie and had been paid. Oh, and the birds, right? The that's, birds is, yeah, no, so I was just going that's earlier than I thought. So that's interesting. So that's before the birds release. Ah, yeah, but there was a massive delay in, in Marnie. There was delays because Hitch wanted Grace Kelly to be the main yeah. character, and there was no way she was going to, as a princess, mm-hmm. be able <laughs> take part in a film that involved her being raped. Yeah. You know, she was very much loved by her people, and in general, you know, she was a fairy tale princess. Yeah, and so she'd she'd agreed to be in in Marnie, and she then she dropped out of it. So there was delays for that, and then there was delays with the script because Hitch was very much very cagey about it. But he basically said, at some point, he said, "We've got to put the script aside for a little bit." To Evan, Evan knew full well that meant you're fired. Yeah. But he sort of he wrote back to him saying, "Oh, but I think we could do this, this," and he was he was playing along, like seeing if he could keep the job. Yeah. And it, the main thing that got him fired was he wrote the scene, the scene the way he wanted it and sent two versions: Hitch's version and the version he wanted, and that was enough for Hitch. And so it was it was the official letter came in yeah. May 1963 where he was officially fired. And how does that tie up with the release date of the birds? May 1963. So that's a few months after March. End of March is when the birds comes out, and according to the letters in March twenty eighth, yeah, yeah, he's happy to play along with the publicity stuff. And there's lots of jokes about him sending off, asking for more bumper stickers to give to his friends for the the birds is coming as the catchphrase yeah. for the the launch. And so his relationships, who knows really? Like you say, there was, there's clearly evidence that um, there's a bit of finger pointing. Mm. As a proud writer, Evan Hunter was really upset to find out that he kept his script for The Birds even kept getting shown to other writers, which is one of Hunt, uh, Hitchcock's practices when he was yeah. making films. He did that. So I mean, the, bird, the Birds did okay in terms of money. The budget was just north of $3 million. It took in uh, a bit less than twelve. Yeah. Which is which is a good showing. That's three times, and that would be counted as a box office break-even a slight success today over three times. So it it did okay, but the critical response was not good. Yeah, and it seems like the audience response was very cool in that uh, first showing. The the 28th of March was the release of it to the special audience at the Museum of Modern Art in New York the day before it went on general release. And it seems like people were filing out of that showing a bit sort of like, "Mm, mm, well... Do you believe, do you agree there is a, a critical school of thought on on this which suggests that one of the reasons that audiences find the film unengaging 
is because Hitch and presumably Hunter have deliberately made the characters unengaging so that we take an outside view of them. So we actually start to almost take the birds side and want to see these characters get mauled. <laughs> I've not heard that, but it's it's an interesting theory. I think, if anything, the real problem was Hitch would have had Cary Grant if he could have afforded him. Yeah. But he couldn't afford him. His his fee would have, as he said, eaten up half of the budget for the picture, and he wanted that money for special effects. Yeah. And if he put Cary Grant in it, he wouldn't have wanted them to be not nice people. He would have wanted people to sympathise with them. They aren't nice people. <laughs> None of them are very nice, apart from Veronica Cartwright's, of the, of the core sort of like family, if you like, if we assume that Melanie's part of the family. It's yeah. only it's only the little girl who's a decent human being. The rest of them are horrible. Yeah, they're not someone you'd want to sit around the table with, really. Not a group of people you'd want to have, have one of these many suppers she keeps getting invited to. <laughs> it, this, is, this is an interesting thing that jumped out at me, and I, I don't know where the impulse for this came from, because it's a very female film. Mitch is defined by his relationship with women. Definitely, yeah. And that is not very Hunter, or it doesn't feel it to me from the Ed McBain side of things. Are you with me? Which is quite masculine, even though there are the female characters. Oh, definitely. And I think it's something that, that Hunter slash McBain learned to do better as, as the years went by, by his own admission and by the admissions of other people who you know, read and reviewed his books. Yeah, It's something he does improve upon. But when you're writing with with Hitchcock as well, and Hitchcock really knew what he wanted to do with his female stars, particularly the star, yeah. Tippi Hedren, it's a strange thing because if it was made nowadays, it would be different, and not just because of some vague notion of political correctness, because films are better now. Yes. Female characters are much better in films. We have moved on a long way. Not far enough by any means. No. But you would have to make a very different version of the birds now to, if you were to make it, even adapting the book right from the start again. Yes, very much so. There's there's a very interesting edge of darknessy version of this, I can imagine, mm. where it's very much an almost ecological horror story. Yeah, yeah, with, with the birds almost like a, an immune response. Well, that sounds like Doctor Who to me. <laughs> That's because Doctor Who nicks stuff from everywhere, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's flawed. It's deeply, deeply flawed. It's in the AFI uh, thriller list. Top one hundred. It's, it's in the it's in the top one hundred, but it's also in the thrill list as well. All right. And I I just I I don't see it. There's better there's better monster movies out there. That's certainly true, and it's, I don't know, perhaps it's partly the weight of Hitchcock being Hitchcock that, yeah. that leads to that. Anyway, we better start to round up a little bit here, so is there anything specific you want to add that we've not covered there? Um, the plot progression is very nice, it's very logical, it's very precise, it's very McBain, it's very Hunter. The, the way the pieces slide into position quite neatly about getting these people to where they need to be, if you accept that she's a nutter and a stalker all the rest of it fits in quite brilliantly i think that that's the main thing for me is that although it's filled with hitchcock's preoccupations you can find trace elements 
of Hunter in there as well. You can see enough to pull little threads which are recognisable from his other work. Well, certainly out of all the things he adapted, and he adapted quite a few of his own stories for the screen. In Fuzz, for example. Well, yes. Comes to mind. Because of Bert. (laughs) Well, yeah, lovely hairy Bert. (laughs) But this is the most famous film he was involved with, and this loomed quite large in his legend. Yeah. And he was always willing to speak about it. He gave plenty of interviews about it. He, you know, appeared on film talking about it. He's in a lot of these DVD extras that kept cropped up and were built up over the years that they were being made. But we need to try and arrive at a, a unit of measurement. So when we do our main episodes, we award every story out of 100 police shields. Ah. And we always find something appropriate for the for the side pods. So we need some form of bird-related unit we can award a score for, for this. Ooh. Discarded feathers, piles of guano. Uh, <laughs> ah, what about bird droppings on a police car? You know how you get cars that end up getting covered? That suggests it's of... how, many bir- yeah, how many bird so droppings it would end take up 100... on the sheriff's car. Yeah, if it would take 100 to completely cover the car. <laughs> well, there are some big birds, isn't there? <laughs> um, so how, what would you rate it ostensibly then out of 100? And be in, honest. In all conscience, I can't go over 50. I really can't. I, I'm going to have to go with, if I'm being generous, I'm going to have to go with the low 40s. All right, go on, give me a number. 43. 43. Well, goodness me, this might end up being one of the lowest rated things we've had on the show. Where would you put it? I would put it a bit higher than that. I, I watched it in fairly close succession a couple of times recently, and it's, I mean, it's nothing like North by Northwest, my favourite of all the Hitchcocks. Oh, I'm so glad you and... said that. That's absolutely, that's mine as well, and it's one of my all-time favourite films. The thing that was the film that made me fall in love with Hitchcock. It has the. I'm also, oh, yeah. Sorry, go on. I'll say I was also a massive fan of things like um, The Lady Vanishes mm-hmm. and some of the and things like Rope, which have got experimentation at their core. Yeah. But again, if you, if you think about Rope, which is so much more contained than this and should feel more stagey and more stodgy, you look at Rope and you look at North by Northwest and they're light and they're breezy and they have pace and they have impact. And this is just a turgid death march. <laughs> turgid death march. <laughs> well, I would rate it 60 splodges of guano on the sheriff's police car. So that's, that's which gives the front and the, and the back quite seriously covered there. You'd have to oh, yeah, definitely. He's got to make sure he gets proper blades on his windscreen wipers. Yeah. And that gives us a special score as we round down on this show for no apparent reason <laughs> of 51 splodges, <laughs> which I think possibly sums up the difference between, or not the difference, the the aspects you and I have both brought to this discussion yeah. about its uh, various quirks. I will throw one last thing in, which Go is a it. last quote from our friend, uh, Mr. Hunter, which is this. The last time I saw it, it was on TV and I had the script on my lap. And I felt a little better after that. It wasn't, after all, what I'd written. Ah, that is an excellent and apposite place to close. And so I will say thank you very much for your contribution. You have been both eloquent and informative, <laughs> and you've not mentioned anything about Doctor Who characters doing things they shouldn't have done in places they shouldn't be. I, it, it's, been, it's been a struggle to be professional, I'll tell you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs>